This podcast was recorded at Hartford Street Zen Center, Isanji, in San Francisco. Please help support our temple by making a donation at hscc.org. Greetings, all. Are you able to hear me okay? Great. What a treat to be here with you. Uh, much gratitude to Abbot Mio for the invitation. Thank you very much to Reverend Cato for the coordination and logistics. It's um, it's a little surprising. It's been almost it's been almost uh, two years since I uh, last spoke to this assembly in Isanji Temple. I still remember it very clearly. So the date, June 15th, it's approaching for us. I, I, uh, for, for those of us living in California, San Francisco, that's the day that the California guidelines uh, align with those of the CDC. And things in San Francisco start to look uh, maybe different. So I wonder for how many of us that will mean something's about to change. And I'm curious if there's anything that you're awaiting just a few days from now. This may not be so for everyone, but I, I interpret this change as a, uh, an auspicious sign. Good things to come. Um, I, do expect a, I do expect a change because in, I live and I train in San Francisco. And a little bit of a Dharma introduction for me. Uh, I train as a priest at City Center, San Francisco Zen Center. And I'm also a a teacher trainee in the insight tradition um, under the leadership of uh, Gil Fronstahl and Andrea Fela. I find that having having these two trainings develop with each other uh, provides me with um, another reference point through which I can discern the wisdom of the Buddha. Seems very fortunate. And I like to um, select and interpret those teachings that tend to to favor um, exploring the Buddha Dharma in terms of training, in terms of the path of training. So the plan for for our morning together, um, in some ways, is inspired by the material itself. I'm, I'm hoping we can relate through what my teacher calls the mind of Zazen. In a sense, sort of meditating together, inquiring together. And that being so, along with my notes, I'll also very likely speak from the heart based on the inspiration of Zazen. And together we'll use the medium of uh, an ancient poem from the early roots of our Buddhist traditions. And this ancient poem is called An Auspicious Day. The antiquity of this poem is attested. uh, There's four short stanzas toward the end of the middle length discourses. And the antiquity of this poem is attested to not only by its placement in this early collection, but also 
the fact that it's featured in and commented upon in three additional suttas, so four teachings back to back. And so imagine, say, say you're involved in the early editing of this collection of works and you're making decisions about this, um, this set of teachings, what's going, to, what's going to go in, what's not, what order will it be placed? If you had something really important you wanted to convey, I wonder if you would put it back to back four times. Maybe. So to, to enter into this poem, an auspicious day, just a, a moment, a word that catches me from the title is auspicious. It really gets my curiosity going. Thinking about what is, what is it to be auspicious? And one of the most provocative questions for me is how do we recognize it? How do we recognize that something is an auspicious sign? What is, it, what is it in us that in our experience indicates that uh, this, this, this uh, foretells something good is coming? Is it the signs from the outside? Is it something external? Some play of light or color or shape? Or do we, do we impute? Is it something internal? And we're, con we're convinced, meanwhile, of the externality by perception. Related to this, Dogen's words translated, the way the self arrays itself is the form of the entire world. The way the self arrays itself is the form of the entire world. Can we say that's internal? Can we say that's external? Or perhaps as regard to auspicious, it's, it's um, this certain revelation, a revelation with some degree of certainty that we call insight. How do we know it? How do we know? There's some signposts and hints about auspicious, perhaps if we, if we look at a handful of images that um, are taken in the, in the texts to be auspicious signs. Imagine you're in the Lotus Sutra assembly and from the Buddha's brow emits a beam of white light, an auspicious sign. Or you're at the, the the sight of the time the Buddha lays down for the final time in the lion's posture and celestial flowers bloom and fall over his body. Or before that, after the first turning of the wheel, the whole earth shakes. Why auspicious? It's a bit mysterious to me, but in, in reflecting on it, I think perhaps a distinguishing mark in the experience of auspicious is confidence, faith, sadha, shraddha. It's 
something when experienced, one can say, oh, now, yes, now I am confident. Come what may. Confidence, faith, shraddha, that, that linking condition that provides a pathway from suffering to freedom. So an auspicious day. So the scene for the poem. Let's imagine you're, let's imagine you're in the early community. Dedicated practitioners, you arise early in the morning. Leaving your hut, you're doing walking meditation before dawn. Your hut is situated among others of your community, this early Sangha that's practicing alongside the Buddha. You're practicing on land that was given, land that was given to the Buddha for the purpose of training, for the benefit of beings. And perhaps you, perhaps you know that this land was given and the huts constructed and the monastery dedicated in a, in a festival by a, a banker from Savati named Anattapindika, because this monastery does bear his name. You're wearing a robe that's a gift. You're dwelling in a dwelling that's a gift. And you're making use of these gifts by waking before dawn, walking meditation in the night. Then at the proper time, you further dress into your formal robes and the whole assembly lines up, single file. And into the city of Sabati, you go for alms. Mindful of each step, sensitive to the breathing and maintaining the noble posture. Now you're in the village and you're met by the kind smiles of the villagers of Savati. The lines of offering and the lines of receiving approach one another. And with that smile and a pause of a wholehearted gift, you're given a pinch of rice into your bowl, given as your livelihood, as your means of practice. And now with your bowl heavier, you re return to Anattapindika's park. You have your meal in the formal way. And when you're finished, you wash the bowl. And then you find a place for the day's abiding and spend it in meditation, seated, walking, training day and night in wholesome qualities. And at some point in the day, you come together with the other monastics into an assembly and you hear a familiar voice. Uh, the voice of this person to whom you've gone for refuge, 
and you've gone forth out of faith in the Buddha. You hear the voice of the Buddha, and you hear him say, Monastics, yes, Bhante. I will teach you the verse and the analysis of an auspicious day. Listen and pay close attention. I will speak. Yes, Bhante. And the Buddha begins. And he says this. Don't chase the past or long for the future. The past is left behind. The future is not yet reached. Right where it is, have insight into whatever phenomena is present. not faltering and not agitated. By knowing it, one develops the mind. We'll pause here after two stanzas. Don't chase the past. When I turn this inquiry inward, I wonder what, again, what indirect experience, what is it that I call the past? And what does it mean to chase it? How do I fabricate the future and support the conditions for longing? I'd also like to say that the while the beginning of this poem emphasizes the immediacy of presence and attention here and now, that the sensations of long time, to my mind, can bode well. For example, they, um, a feeling of a depth of time can connect us to a tradition that feels ancient. in a manner of speaking that the ancients are supporting us. The ancients are at our back. The ancients have our back in Dharma practice. So with the, with the sensations of long time, this tradition arrives with a sense of its history. And what happens to that sense of ancient time when you meet Dongshan eye to eye? When the past is left behind and the future is not yet reached, an imperturbable now. Its fineness fits into spacelessness. Its fine width leaves no trace. Its broadness leaves no trace. Is that upright vision an auspicious sign? 
is it an auspicious sign, the malleability of subjective time? Or the cosmic clock flashing in and out of perception? So presence, this moment, right where it is. Here the way unfolds, now the way unfolds. Right where it is, have insight into whatever phenomena is present. Not faltering and not agitated by knowing it, one develops the mind. A slogan as a reminder to experience now as now. One teacher put this in an interesting way. There are only ever six things going on. Contact at the eye door, contact at the ear, nose, tongue, contact through the body, contact at the mind, six things experienced as now. I find it tremendously helpful when um, meditation renders available any number of thoughts and feelings and emotions and sensations to remember that the, the felt experience of the body is always happening in the present. So these six doorways, these six gates, always experienced as now. And I appreciate the, the hint, the hint of this poem, not faltering and not agitated. And I wonder how, I wonder how ever more, in an ever more refined way to practice those qualities. From a sensibility of peace. It seems so simple and so profound to practice knowing just this right here, this thing right here, this phenomenon right now. And profound, profound in what, it, what is revealed through the, the meetings of our own karma and this practice. This, this vision of comprehensive interconditionality. Everything we call phenomena arising, coursing, passing away from being and streaming its influence into the next arising and the next. Conditioning the next now.
this principle that's so basic to Buddhist practice that dependent on this, that arises. What auspicious function can we play in this whole works? Knowing this, one develops the mind. And with our discernment so sharpened by presence, prepared for possibilities, with the inspiration to engage, engage with this moment and the requests of practice and to do it while we can. And this is where the third stanza picks up. The Buddha continues, ardently do what should be done today. Who knows, death may come tomorrow. There's no bargaining with mortality and his great army. In my early uh, exposure to this poem, I tended to skip over that line. There's no bargaining with mortality in his great army. And maybe, maybe it's after the 15 months that we've had or some other condition. I, it catches me each time. I read it and I, I realize that I've changed. There is no bargaining with mortality in his great army. And I wonder to myself, how deeply do I know this to be true? At times, the whole span of 15 months has seemed like a moment. And other moments have extended on. The residents of City Center met this morning for the first time for a residence meeting um, in some many months. And someone said, it feels like yesterday we were all in the Zendo together. Somehow it feels like there's been no interruption. And yet, it's been 15 months of great sorrows and joys. And with what length and with what, what weight? To quote, for the time being, stand on top of the highest peak. For the time being, proceed along the bottom of the deepest ocean. For the time being, three heads and eight arms of a fighting demon. And for the time being, an eight or 16 foot body of the Buddha.
all these experiences of time. And the message of this teaching of this early poem, this clear emphasis on this present moment, this presently arisen moment, to experience now as if it's now. One of the assurances, one of the assurances that arises is that even experiencing the past is being done in the present. We experiencing it, we experience it now as if it were then. Who among us can forget the Buddha's passing? And when we recall that scene, whose mind and body don't respond, whose mind and body doesn't respond to the call. Our past is present. So with some of us, with the memories of May 25th of last year. And just so when we think of this moment of Dongshan seeing his reflection in the water, somehow experiencing the past as present, the past as now. mental contact. There are only ever six things going on, he said. The body is always present. And somehow the mind is always present. To take a step deeper into inquiry, why bother with these modes of perception? What's our, what is our own motivation for practicing the inquiry that's suggested in this way? Do we do it out of uh, tradition? Or uh, maybe I've seen it work for other people. They seem happy. They seem happy. I want to I practice in that way. They have something I want. Or it's one of the teachers in our tradition when seeing, when seeing um, the abbot of the temple do service and seeing that happen for the first time, had the thought, those feet can teach me zazen. Yeah, what's our motivation? Maybe we've had some palpable experience of uh, non-clinging, body freedom or mental freedom. or based on something intuitive, some auspicious sign. Ardently do what should be done today. Tomorrow death may come, who knows? Zooming in further, no bargaining. Actually, I'll turn the question and say, how have we been bargaining? Because to my mind, this is not an idle question. To my mind, an earnest, honest vision of our bargaining, our bartering, our hustling with death and with pain, right there, 
we find the path. Right amidst the, our strategies and activities to render death invisible or not conscious, it reveals, it reveals to us the path that our own karma has set out for us. Right there is the path. How do we bargain? Many different motivations have sustained practitioners over, over the years, over the years of practice. And surely the, those motivations shift. At times practicing for others, at times practicing for ourselves, at times practicing for our, for our families, at times practicing for our temples. And one of these motivations that's come for me in, in time has been um, doing it to try my best to repay the gift of the Buddha, to repay the gifts of the Buddha. I don't know from where that impulse arises, but sometimes that's the, that's the impetus that motivates me through another day of earnest, honest practice, trying to return the gift. And it's a, it's a practice of homage. So the last time the Buddha laid down, he was walking his way home, very long trek. I I understand maybe some 300 miles and he realized he wasn't quite gonna make it. So at the foothills of the Himalayas, in a grove of solid trees near a river, his attendant lays, lays out his robe and he lies on his right side in the lion's posture. And then as it puts it in the Dhyunikaya, those twin solid trees burst forth into an abundance of timely blossoms, which fell upon the Buddha's body, sprinkling it and covering it in homage. Divine coral tree flowers fell from the sky and divine sandalwood powder fell from the sky, sprinkling and covering the Buddha's body in homage. Divine music and song sounded from the sky in homage to the Tathagata. Noting this scene and describing it as such, the Buddha then said, never before has the Tathagata been so honored, revered, esteemed, worshiped and adored. And yet, Ananda, whatever monk, nun, or lay follower dwells practicing the Dharma, practicing the Dharma properly, they honor the Tathagata, revere and esteem him and pay him supreme homage.
this being the final time the Buddha lays down. Shortly, out of compassion, he addressed the assembly and showing his perseverance and energy and ethical commitment. Asked if there were any questions about the practice, showing his timeless practice. That's hmm, intimate with this poem, an auspicious day. The final stanza of the poem. Whoever dwells thus ardent, active day and night, is, says the peaceful sage, one who has an auspicious day. Having heard the Buddha's words, this compassionate lion, you and your fellow monastics in the forest of Savati, delight and are urged and roused in your practice. Your hearts brightened and auspiciously bent toward freedom. The Buddha said, don't chase the past or long for the future. The past is left behind, the future is not yet reached. Right where it is, have insight into whatever phenomena is present. Not faltering and not agitated. By knowing it, one develops the mind. Ardently do what should be done today. Who knows, death may come tomorrow. There is no bargaining with mortality and his great army. Whoever dwells thus ardent, active day and night, is, says the peaceful sage, one who has an auspicious day. So may it be that our meditation on contemplation of this ancient poem is an auspicious sign in itself. And may our contemplation of auspicious more and more render us sensitive to a recognition of the conditions that give rise to our confidence in the Dharma. And may our inquiry deepen regarding how it is that we not chase the past or long for the future. But just to know this with clarity and kindness and wisdom. May all beings benefit. So I understand we may have some time for conversation yes uh, uh koto-san thank you very much please uh ask for questions if you like please anyone who has a question comment or anything arising Abbot Mio. um 
when you describe the the uh, day of the uh, monastic, um, it seemed to me that you left out the nap, which was a little discouraging. So I just wanted to mention that. <laughs> yes, thank you very much. Thank you very much. It was a, an abridged, uh, abridged imagining. Thank you for filling it in. Very comp. Actually, it makes me want to mention something about living at Tassahara and discovering the 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 deep rest available through the four minute nap. <laughs> yeah. As I recall, uh, Shakyamuni Buddha, uh, after the uh, alms rounds and after the meal would, uh, as it says, uh, after sleeping off the heaviness that comes from eating. Wow. So it could be, that could be more than four minutes. Surely could. Yeah. Surely could. Thank you. Thank you very much. If I may say, it's very nice to see some familiar faces in the, in the group here. I think I see someone in Isanji with whom I lived for a little while at City Center. <coughs> yeah, this is our first Saturday with um, uh, the congregation assembling like this. So this is quite, quite auspicious. And I just wanted to mention earlier this morning, um, I was in the front hall and I happened to look through the uh, front door window and I'm pretty sure I saw very briefly an, a rainbow. Mm. So that struck me as very auspicious. Quite so. And I think, I'm sorry, Mike or Wade had a question. Hi. Uh, yes, this is Wade, and and it is wonderful to see um, a zendo full of people. Uh, which um, our temple, we're from Chicago, is not meeting in person yet, um, but it it warms my heart to see that. So that's that's wonderful. Um, I guess my question is: You started your talk. Uh, <laughs> thank you for the camera pan. Yes. Um, talking about. Uh, Training, right? You mentioned that, that you're in training and that's a helpful lens for you. I was wondering if you could talk about, usually we talk about practice as practice, not practice as training. I don't, um, I was wondering if you could speak about how those are related, not related, the same. Sure, thank you for the question, Wade. When I, when I use, for myself, when I use the word training, what I mean is that it, um, it provides some hints to the fact that the, the engagement with the Dharma um, is an engagement that matures us over time. It brings in the element of time. And I believe that also applies to the principle of practice. When you, when you said that, when you asked about the distinction, I had a memory of um, my first teacher telling me that 
being on Sashin is a form of training. And then being outside of Sashin, we practice what we've trained in. I'm not sure what he was pointing at, actually. <laughs> uh, maybe just to say that. The, yeah, the, wor the word training, I think, gets a little less airtime in communities that, that speak in terms of practice primarily. I noticed myself in responding to your question, I want to use them interchangeably. So I'm, I don't have a, a very firm distinction there for you. But um, it, do, it does bring forth the question for me, what, what do the different words, how do they resonate differently in you? Do they point you in different directions? Yeah, um, that's, that's an interesting question. And I, maybe that's why I asked it, because I hadn't thought about it in, in those terms. I hadn't thought about the differences and similarities between those two. Um, training feels more teleological, like it's oriented towards a goal. Mm. Um, practice feels like something that you just do. Uh, mm. But I don't, I don't know that that's actually the case. Um, certainly our, our practice is not, not aimed towards a goal, right? The goal is to, is to be free from clinging to goals. Um, and, and so that's a paradox, right? Hmm. So no, I, I have I, I have no uh, structured thoughts about this. Um, so so I appreciate your answer very much. Truly happy to meet with you about that in this moment. Thank you. Karasan, uh, is that Delop? I don't know if you can see me, but. Uh, it's so nice to hear you, and I hope to see you sometime soon. Um, the word auspicious makes, uh, gives this feeling of something special, a special condition of some, some, some special co-arising that can produce uh, things that are desirable. And um, makes me wonder, what is your idea of uh, the opposite of auspicious? And in a way, sometimes I feel, not all times, but sometimes I feel that every breath is auspicious. And, and if that is the case, What, what, what do you feel about, I mean, how do you explain what auspicious is and what isn't auspicious? Mm. Uh, excuse me, uh, Koto-san, we don't have all of the audio visuals. Uh, we don't have all of our bugs worked out yet. And I'm not sure everyone could hear uh, Dilip's question. Could you summarize, please? Uh, I could, I could. Uh, Dilip, I think I, I heard about 90% of uh of the question given the given what, what i was able to hear and the kernel of it so far as i heard it was um you understand auspicious to um be a sign of something arising that's desirable 
and what would be what would be something that how, how would we recognize something as inauspicious and how do we distinguish the two was that was that close to your question yeah and i also added that if uh, if you feel that every breath is auspicious and every moment is auspicious then in that that kind of makes me wonder like what really is the meaning of the word auspicious mm. importantly how do we look at the times when we don't feel auspicious uh-huh. sure um I appreciate the I appreciate that that line of inquiry. What it brings up immediately is every day is a good day. Yes. Every breath is a good breath for practice. And then a pointing for me toward um uh knowing that auspicious isn't necessarily a noun and that it points me in the direction of um oh, what is it almost feels like infusing infusing the moment this moment with the breathing with a blessing it's like the attitude or the inquiry about aus- auspicious invites invites this present moment experience into contact with a wholesome beautiful quality in that in that line inauspicious would be the ways we bring a destructive quality into contact with the breathing or to to move back toward the talk what are the ways that we bargain what are the ways that we bargain with death and my notion for this moment june 12th is that those moments for for now that i mark might mark as inauspicious the bargaining with death those point point us to exactly where our karma is asking for that blessing and in that way we bring inauspicious and auspicious together to my mind that's beautiful how does that land for you dela i love to circle that Thank you. So nice to hear you and see you again. I guess I could ask the age-old repetitive question. This is Kato off camera here um, about um, you know just a suggestion, and you know I would assume every moment is an auspicious moment. Every day is a good day. We can't necessarily go about our lives being overly precious about everything and um, you know whisking around in a state of everything being auspicious all the time. So what would be an expression? of all these auspicious moments and 
and every day being a good day. Was the, was the question, how, how can those live together? How, can those, how would you suggest those manifest in our daily lives, maybe? Hmm. How would we help them to manifest? Yeah. A comment I appreciate so much. There's a way that the, the conversation brings into balance the message, the messages that have come before. So it brings into balance maybe an emphasis on the on the beautiful, skillful, wholesome qualities with a recognition that you're pointing out now that um, is is the is the request to go around being precious or like treating every moment as or like being precious about each moment. And I would say there's something there's something too in a balanced way, bringing de deliberately bringing a skillful quality to the, the present moment. And there are, there are those times in practice when um, that, that is inappropriate or heavy or sticky or too much cotton candy for the moment. To my mind, a teaching that this, this poem points toward isn't necessarily adding a skillful, beautiful mental quality. It's about clear presence with what is here now, regardless. So earlier I heard the phrase, um, no clinging to goals, really emphasize this point of no clinging. And the, the, the basic practice, the basic practice of awareness, regardless of what the object of awareness is, regardless of its quality. And there in the meeting, in the challenges of that request, um, all the ways that, in a certain sense, we bargain with getting away from the present moment. That that is the that is the practice. That's the place of practice, or that too is the place of practice. Let me say that. Thank you. That works for me. Thank you very much. Uh, maybe that's uh, good for for now, uh, unless there's another question or comment. Uh, Koto-san, thank you so much for joining us and speaking the Dharma with us. And please, uh, please come again. And uh, all y'all, all please take care. Thank you so much. Thank you, Abit Mio. Thank you, Reverend Cato. Thank you to the assembly. So great to be with you.